that for me was the power of music, right? It politicized me in a way that nothing else had. The message, spotlighting the most important voices of today with Ebro, an open dialogue about their experiences in these times and the music that inspires them. Welcome back to The Message. I'm your host, Ebro Darden. Today, we're throwing it back 2021. Sophia Chang, hip-hop legend. You may not know the name, but you will after this convo. She managed many of your favorite acts. Tribe Called Quest, Rafael Sadiq since then. Produced TV series, Project Runway All-Stars, plus the memoir, The Baddest Bitch in the Room. She joined me for Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month to talk about her experience as the first ever Asian woman in hip-hop. Let's get into it. All right, here we go. The message. Another episode right here on the Ebro Show, Apple Music One. Today, my friend joins us uh, representing uh, hip-hop worldwide, representing Wu-Tang, you know? Sophia Chang, what's happening? Hi, Ebro. I'm so excited to be here. I was When I got your text, I was like, wait, what? Oh, my God, yeah. it's Ebro. I was very happy. Yes, we've known each other for many years. Um, you being just uh, a person who has made it your life's work to do dope shit, specifically in and around hip hop. Um, and, and you know, it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And so we was like, let's have Sophia on so she could talk about her message as a woman in the game. And uh, I would love to hear what, what is that message? And what would you like to tell people today? Um, well, I guess germane, Ebro, to it being API Heritage Month, I'll speak through the prism of, I'm actually Asian-Canadian, um, Asian-North American woman who is middle-aged and a mother. So there are a number of intersections here. The first Asian woman in hip-hop who was raised by Wu-Tang. I think that what I would say especially in light of the terrible violence that has befallen my community, right? Yeah. Is that um, there are a few things I want to say. Am I allowed to curse? You can say whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> Number one, <laughs> one, of my, one of my taglines and mantras is fuck your model minority. Um, I'm sure that your audience and you are aware that the model minority myth was something that was created essentially by white supremacy uh, post the Second World War. And it was essentially created to drive a wedge between the black and Asian communities. Mm -hmm. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a historian. I'm not an academic. You guys should Google it because I can't speak really, really smartly about it. But I know that this is the source of much of um, the racism against our community, as well as what we ourselves internalize. And I think that it's really important that we as Asian Americans claim our heritage in whatever way feels comfortable to us, right? So I happen to be a soon-to-be 56-year-old Asian-Canadian woman who's out here rocking this crazy samurai hairdo, as you know, Ebro, <laughs> yeah. and jumping up and down on tables and pounding my chest and saying in no uncertain terms that I'm the baddest bitch in the room. I think it's radical uh, for, mm -hmm. all those, for all the obvious reasons. 
Um, I wrote a memoir and I am now telling my story, but I don't expect anybody to do it in my fashion, right? I think what's really important for all marginalized communities is that we tell our stories. Uh, at Fife's memorial, God rest his soul, at the Apollo, I remember um, that Quest Green, who was the MC, he paced up and down the stage at one point and he said, tell your story. Tell right. your story. And Ibra, what that meant to me was, Fife isn't here to tell his story anymore. He told it in a beautiful fashion, right, over decades. And now it's incumbent upon you to tell your story. And I think that through telling our stories, this is how we build empathy. And by building empathy, by extension, we then create humanity and we are seen as human. And I think that there's so much, we've been robbed. So many of us have been robbed of our humanity. I have a friend, a very smart friend named Julie Sona, who's a film director that's once said, I believe that every person should be granted access to the full spectrum of humanity. Mm-hmm. And that means different things for different people, right? So what does it mean for me? Um, as an Asian woman, it means that part of my spectrum of humanity is that I can curse if I want. Mm-hmm. I can be angry if I want. I can be outspoken if I want. I can upset the fucking apple cart if I want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of these things, right? I am also a sex positive and a body positive. I'm a feminist that way. And so for the Asian women out there, many of us are viewed through the male lens, right? Specifically the white male lens. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we are largely exoticized, eroticized, and fetishized, right? And we're, you know, we're we're either the geisha or we're um, the dragon lady dom, right? And Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with being either of those things, but that is imposed upon us. Right, Ebro? And again, there's a full spectrum that exists in between and right. we, we're, not, we're not granted the grace of defining ourselves. So that's a big message for me, for our community, for the Asian community is basically my feeling is fuck your model minority. Um, I know that I've absolutely internalized it along with a lot of other terrible things, right? And I'm trying to deprogram myself and unlearn that every day. Um, to any of the marginalized communities out there, I implore everybody to tell their story in whatever fashion that is. Ebro, you've been telling your story for a long time. Yeah. Right? In, in your own fashion, in the way that you have been ensconced in hip hop, and as you are a vessel that gives a platform to artists, that's part of your story. And it's beautiful yeah. and it's powerful. And you, like me, we have facilitated storytellers, right? And it's a really, I think it's part of what we feel is our mission. And for me, um, I don't do that anymore. I want to be very clear on your show, Ebro Darden, to your whole audience. (laughs) I do not manage rappers anymore. (laughs) I am am careening through middle age. I don't have connection to the music. I am, my opinion is meaningless. I'm, I'm not relevant anymore. Please stop sending well, me your demos and your sound No, let's, let's not say your opinion is meaningless. Let's just say you're okay. not doing that business anymore. Because, okay, I'm not doing that because business Because what, what I'm not going to let you do today is, uh, is devalue what you just articulated, which Thank all you. artists and creators need to... Uh, be able to um, have somebody that reminds them of that, 
right? Uh, which you've always done great job at making people feel safe in their truth and then Thank pushing you. them out to the forefront and, and putting that battery on their back and, and lighting that fire for them. So let's not say your opinion is okay. meaningless. Let's not okay. do that. But what, but I, I can say that she's not taking demos and she's not managing artists. Let's just do that. Thank you. In short, I never want to chase another rapper for the rest of my fucking life. Look, nobody does that better than Sophia Chang. I can That's pretty right. much attest to that, but I never want to do it anymore. Sophia Chang, the great manager, uh, spent many years, how many years managing and, and Wu-Tang specifically and working with and helping and how many years? So I never managed Wu-Tang Clan. I want to be really clear about that. People say that. I was. I called up Riz. I was like, people keep saying I managed Wu-Tang, and I've never, ever claimed that. He was like, so, that's just going to happen. You can't control right. that. So to be clear, well, you, I managed— You were, you were in, in business endeavors, so it, it happened yes. because people would contact you to find— That's right. And they still and do. Locate. They still do. Yes. And please stop doing that, too. So I managed <laughs> Old Dirty Bastard, God Rest His Soul, in 95. Um, and then I managed RZA in, I think, 07. And then Jizza in, like, 2012. So I have a sense for you Wu heads out there. It means that Sophia Chang has managed every three-letter member of the Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my association with them, Ebro, I met them in the summer of 1993, like a few, f four or five months before the explosion, which was Enter the Wu-Tang. Right. Um, and so, but in, in this uh, music and entertainment business, uh, helping people pivot from just making music to doing other things was also part of your expertise, correct? Yes, thank you, yes. Because a lot of a lot of finding that path for creatives, right, and and being able to expand their endeavors is is always a dream when people get into into hip hop specifically, but music in general, entertainment, all types of things. Yes, so that started with RZA. Jim Jarmusch asked him to score Ghost Dog, and then I just kind of took that ball and I ran with it. And I introduced him to Quentin Tarantino and Donnie Yen um, and John Woo because I, at the point that I got back into hip-hop, remember, I left hip-hop in 95, Ebro, to right. go study Shaolin Kung Fu. And I, you know, I partnered with the Shaolin Monk and had children. And when I got back into music... Um, in the late 2000s, I didn't want to be in the music business again, per se. I kind of wanted to bridge into film. And so for me, the, the way to do that was take my knowledge from the music business and then put it, put it into film. So I managed RZA as a composer. I managed Organized Noise, whom you know as well, from Atlanta. Yeah. And I really enjoyed existing in, in both of those worlds, and I learned a lot. Uh, with Jizza, when I managed Jizza, the transition that I helped him make, which was so easy, right? These things only happen because they have the talent, right? It's not like I go, oh, you should compose and let me infuse you with the gift. No, they already have it. You know, I think what managers, I think what really good managers do, Ebro, and you probably agree with this, is that they see the talent, and then it, you don't just take incoming calls, right? Then I'm just going to answer, you know, I'm going to hire a fucking 16-year-old to take my calls. No, what you do right. is you look at the artist and you understand their vision and you respect it and you believe in it passionately. And then for me, the best managers take that and they extrapolate and they're expansive, right? You have this capacious imagination for what it is that your artist could do. So with Jizza, um, and you know this as well as I do, like Rizza, he is insanely 
intellectually curious. Mm -hmm. They read all the time. They love science. You know, when they were called the All In Together crew, I believe, I think that, you know, Jizza was the genius, Rizza was the scientist, and ODB was the professor, something like that. Rizza gave Jizza <laughs> the name genius. Um, and so I said to Jizza, um, have you ever thought about lecturing? And he said, I've actually been asked so if I've never done it before. And so I said, I think we should do this. You should do this. And so I got him his first lecture at Harvard because I'm a Korean immigrant. And um, you know what's so interesting, Ebro? The first words out of his mouth were, I'm really nervous. Yeah. After he said, peace, peace to the audience. And I was taken aback because you think about it, they've done literally thousands of shows, right, Ebro? Since 1992, before the album came out. But standing in a classroom with a couple of hundred of students at a podium and no one's drinking, no one's high, there are no pyrotechnics, right? There's no hype man, there's no DJ, there's, there's no, no music, cover. it's just, there's that's no right. Just, there's no cover, it's just transparency, it's you. Exactly, it's you and a mic. Um, and then, because my imagination always said, okay, well, when Jizza gets to the age when he decides he doesn't want to go on the road anymore, because we know that the road is grueling, even under the best of circumstances, that shit is grueling. I hate the road. Mm -hmm. um, that he can have this ancillary means of income and output and storytelling that can act, eventually become primary if he wants. I did the same thing with Joey Badass. I never managed Joey, but I ran um, Pro Era Records for him, his label. And I asked him the same thing. I said, do you want a lecture? He said, I want to do it, so. And we went to Harvard as well, um, and he did NYU. And literally, same thing. The first words out of his mouth, Ebro, were, I'm really nervous. It was so fascinating, and it was so beautiful because they were so humble in the way that they presented, despite their massive, massive talent. And so that was really a delight for me, was um, facilitating the transitions into other worlds. And then, you know, Riza, you know, Riza, I think, is the only person I know that literally is living his childhood dream. I know that there are others. I'm saying that me personally. Right, right, um, right. Meaning he was a kid growing up in the projects of Staten Island, one of 11 children, to uh, a single mother and he watched kung fu movies like so many people did and in his mind as a child he was like i want to make those movies and he's making those movies yeah it's extraordinary it's extraordinary i gotta watch that nobody joint too that they just that he was just into the new movie he was actually yeah, just on the program a couple of weeks ago too it was great to see him and uh you know watching him jump out there with uh meth and, and red man and watching him jump who else did he jump out with uh uh, Ghost and Ray during their thing, like seeing seeing both of those moments, it's it's phenomenal. And none of us thought that it would it would. Uh, we didn't know where we was going. But to your point earlier in our conversation, when you said tell your story, you know, go tell your story, and you started your playlist here with the message, uh, which many you know people say is probably the first street rap record in history. You know where this this song was you know, uh, talking about things that America was trying to hide. You know, the Bronx was burning and, you know, it was a disaster up there and you had this record come on the radio and, and a lot of the, um, the establishment, as it were at the time, the, the assimilators and, and specifically black politicians and people who wanted to protect their, their jobs and their income did not want the world to know how much of a failure 
the Bronx had become, you know, putting that when they would that what was it the uh, the Cross Bronx Expressway and the destruction that 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 did to that community up there, you know, put a freeway right through it, drove property values in the dumps. Uh, what was the man's name? The racist uh, city planner. Moses? Yes, Robert Moses. Yeah, Robert Moses. You know, they say Robert Moses made the overpasses in Long Island uh, so low that buses could not go under them to get to the beach to keep the black people away from the beach. You know, that's why, that's why infrastructure is an issue yep. that impacts race and class. Yeah. Right? So when people are like, well, why is that in the infrastructure bill? You know, because it's all tied. You know, when we talk about systemic racism, right, these are the myriad ways that it manifests. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, the more I read about it and the more I learn about it, um, it's shocking and not surprising. Right, Ebro? Like you go, fuck. And you're not surprised. Well, right. But, you know, the other part, though, is astonishing is the genius of it all. Oh, oh, yeah. The, the, right, the 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 oh, the, the, the yes. planning, the genius, the strategy, the oh my god, the architecture, the architecture of white supremacy is fucking ingenious. It is insidious. You know, it just bleeds through every nook and cranny and every pore of this society and every building. Yes, it's 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 ingenious, and that's why it takes so much work to resist. And defy. Um, on that re resist and defy, you made sure to put some great punk records on your playlist too. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about you know because that you know where we are today in hip hop. I think you know it ebbs and flows. You know Travis Scott and some of the some of these guys are giving us some rock energy in in, in their music and but that punk hip hop crossroads, you know, where you had the Beastie Boys and Run DMC and these things that were going on here in New York and the Lower East Side. But you as a music fan, right? Uh, talk about, you know, that intersection of, of punk and hip-hop for you. Big time. Uh, I mean, I was raised in a household. My father, God rest his soul, listened to so many different kinds of music, whether it was Nat King Cole or it was opera, right? We heard music all the time. And my brother, who's three years older than me, my brother, Hesok, was kind of my Sherpa that way, you know, he would listen to records. And so I was born in 65. And then in high school is kind of when punk really started taking shape. And I love, I think I put the Clash on there. I put the Ramones yep. on there. I'll come yep. back to the Ramones in a second. But certainly what appealed to me, Ebro, was the anti-establishment sentiment, right? Mm -hmm. And there was an anger. And you know, when I heard the message, too, it was definitely, it just resonated. First of all, there's the beat, right? I'm a girl that right. likes to dance. And so there's the beat and there's a visceral response to it. And then there was a very spiritual, emotional, soulful connection to just kind of the urgency behind it. And it started with punk, for sure. Um, the Clash is my favorite band of all time. The Clash, when I listened to Sandinista, their three album set, I fucking went to the Vancouver Public Library. I got on the bus and I went downtown and I went to the, you know, remember the Dewey Decimal System? You fucking pull out the, the drawers yeah, and you're looking yeah, through the little index the cards. cards. Yeah, uh, the index cards, yeah, man. And we had to learn that system. And I looked up, you know, the recent history of Nicaragua and I studied the Sandinistas. And that for me was the power of music. 
right? It politicized me in a way that nothing else had. Literature hadn't even politicized me, and I'm a French lit major. I also put uh, the Ramones on there, who are largely seen as the progenitors of punk rock, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because in my uh, senior year of college, I visited New York, and I went to the Ritz, now Webster Hall, and I saw who I thought was Johnny Ramone, and I raced up to him, and I was like, hi, I'm Sophia Chang. You're Johnny Ramone, aren't you? And he was like, I'm Joey. If you know anything about the Ramones, you could, <laughs> you could never, ever confuse those two. Um, and then we became friends, and we became pen pals, and then he introduced me to Legs McNeil, a tremendous music journalist. That's who I stayed with when I moved back to New York. Legs' girlfriend at the time, Carol, got me a job at Paul Simon, and, you know, all of these, there's an ecosystem, right, Ebro? Mm-hmm. Our lives are a string of some very small and very big events. And some, some of those very small interactions turn out to be monumental. And whether it's people playing roles in our lives or us playing roles in other people's lives, I really love that human interaction. So punk was very important to me, especially as a yellow girl growing up in a white world who wanted to be white, Okay, mm. to hear this kind of pushing up against the system. Uh, and I think that that's why hip hop resonated with me so deeply. Certainly, I didn't have the language for it, Ebro, but you know, the only exposure I had to people of color, including my own people, other than family and community, was what came through the Hollywood lens, which is right. racist. It's racist right. and it's sexist. And so, with hip hop, I think it's the first time that I was exposed to people of color taking control of their own narrative. Mm. And I think at some level, that's what kind of hit me. You're listening to The Message with Sophia Chang. Don't forget to head over to Apple Music right now. Add her message playlist to your library. Wu-Tang Classics on there. Some old school punk, The Clash, Ramones, even Luther Vandross. That's all her tastes, just to show you how musically diverse she is, man. Love, Sophia. And make sure you hit that subscribe button in the podcast app to follow every episode of The Message as they come out. Getting back to talking to Sophia Chang right now. You know, we started our conversation today, uh, Sophia Chang. Um, You know, obviously, we wanted to bring you on. It is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Um, But also, there's been just a tremendous um, outpouring of support of the Asian community because we are faced with this ugliness that rears its head, um, whether it's going after, you know, uh, Mexican immigrants. The uh, the racism is always on for black people. Um, and then we're seeing this, uh, you know, Asian hate, you know, in response to COVID-19. But I always push back at these kind of, this idea that it's just happening right now in this isolated period of time, right? In in society, specifically American society, there's an undercurrent of racism towards minority groups. And anyone that doesn't neatly fit into the white male-dominated, white supremacist uh, kind of designated box that you need to fit into um, at all times, you know, we, I had Eddie Huang on, and we were just we were I talking love about the, yeah, Eddie's great. Just talking about how, um, you know, the 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 miscommunication and the divisiveness that was created between blacks and Asians, right? And which you spoke about 
uh, earlier, but then also just all of the Asian, anti-Asian um, hate that has existed forever in America. I'm watching Warrior right now on HBO Max, which takes place in 1875 in San Francisco is where it starts. Uh, and it starts with, and this this is two seasons in, this is before this month. It starts highlighting the Irish-Asian conflicts in San Francisco uh, when Asians were being brought in to build the trolley car system and work in San Francisco. Um, and this is, you know, over 150 years ago. Yes. So I have a lot of thoughts about the anti-Asian violence. Uh, one of the first things that I saw starting to pop up was um, people citing that a lot of the violence was perpetrated by other people of color, more specifically black folks, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't actually care whether or not the statistic is true, Ebro, because... Uh, what I think we have to recognize, again, is the ingenuity of white supremacy, right? right. So I don't look at the player, I look at the game. Mm. How, if, if this statistic is true, okay, then we can't look at this as an opportunity to sit in anti-blackness. No, we have to try to get underneath it and say, well, what, why why would this be? What is the result of? And it's for me, it's always going to come back to white supremacy, right? It's exactly what you and I are talking about. It is by design. It is architected, right? Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I want to say is that, of course, I mean, anti-Asian sentiment, like anti-black, anti-brown, anti-indigenous, anti-gay, anti-trans, all of that has anti -Jewish. existed for a long time. Anti-Semitic, right. yeah, anti all of it, exactly. I think what the narrative that's in the media right now that is frustrating to me as an outspoken Asian, is that there is this sudden awakening in the Asian community. And, and I'm sure that that's true for some people, right? Asians are rising up and standing up. Uh, Asian Americans are rising up and standing up. And I'm sure, again, that that is true for some folks. But I don't like our community to be painted with this broad brush, right? That all of us were asleep, Ebro, and then suddenly this ill shit started happening and we all woke up. Some of us have been awake. Yeah. So it, it Look, what it I'm does. I'm from the Bay is, Area, so you know I know. Yeah, I mean the Bay, where some of the greatest Asian activists, Asian American right. activists, have mm -hmm. heralded from, right? And so what it does then is that it that is that erases the work, the incredible work, of so many amazing Asian American activists, and also the beautiful alliances that have been created between Black and Yellow folks, right? Mm -hmm. I say Yellow, and. I think it's really important that we acknowledge, again, that this is by design, and again, why I say fuck your model minority. For instance, in New York City, Ebro, I don't, um, my son was actually the person to point this out to me, that I believe it's the Asian population in New York City, more of us live below the poverty line than any other ethnicity. Yep. And what happens in the Asian community is that, and I'm guilty of this myself from my years of ignorance, is that when we picture Asians, we picture Chinese, Korean, and Japanese, right? Far Eastern. And we're not thinking about, well, what is it to be Laotian, Cambodian, Vietnamese, Hmong, Filipino, right? There's a real difference. I believe Thai. that there is a different, Thai, exactly. There's a difference between, um, if you look at the data, I believe that uh, there is an economic difference there. Right. Mm -hmm. So to say that, oh, you people, you people are all good 
you're getting into all of the great schools. You're taking our, you know, you're taking our positions at the specialized high schools and at the Ivies and all. You're taking our jobs and all that stuff. I don't actually think that that's necessarily true. And again, our diaspora is massive and it's beautiful and it's robust. But to say that we're all this thing, you know, and be so reductive about it, uh, I think is unfair. So I am very, I'm, I'm devastated over the recent violence that has befallen our community. And I'm also acutely aware that though it is much more concentrated now, like to your point, it is not new. And I appreciate you acknowledging that. Yeah, I think we we um we slip into revisionist history, right? Real quick where and it happens all the time, right? We all do it like even as blatant as make America great again. When was it great and to whom and for whom? And what are we talking about? And we always like, but we all do it, right? It's it, it, People do it when they go, you know, Brooklyn's changed. It's not the way it used to be, right? And you're like, okay, well, let's talk about Fort Greene in the way that it used to be, right? Like, I, there was a lot of great people. There was a lot of great things going on, but there was also a very bad time. There was also a very tough time, right? Um, and so we can't just wash over those things because we got so used to dysfunction that it became normal, and now we romanticize it like it was all good. We've been working on perfecting this and bettering ourselves, and the moment we forget that we're working on that, the moment we forget we're a work in progress is the moment we slip and and fall into this revisionist history cycle, which is is plagued by that the the marketing of the American exceptionalism, right? right? Which is which is some bullshit. Right, exactly. And and to your point, every time I hear, you know, this is not who we are. You know, this is not America. I'm like, this is exactly who the fuck you are. <laughs> this is America. This is exactly what you've wrought. Is this hatred? And this infighting between communities is exactly it. Um, you know, the other thing I want to say in terms of uh, all of the racism against all the different communities, while that is true, I think it's really important for Asians to acknowledge that we are white adjacent, that mm. we do, uh, many of us, we do benefit from our proximity to whiteness. And that uh, being Asian in this country is not the same as being black or brown or indigenous in this country, right? Uh, and I, I think it's so key. And that is not, I am not diminishing what my people go through. I am not doing that. But I am saying There's with conviction and clarity. Shit. That's right. It is not equal. Right. It's not. And even, and, and you know, I hear, I have a lot of Filipino friends and family, couple, some Thai, and that complexionism that still yes. works within yes. the Asian, you know, different different groups yes. is a big thing too because the <clears throat> the browner you are and the darker you are as an Asian, you still are not only Asian but you're considered almost like a black Asian. And right. that also gets you, you know, ostracized and treated yeah. very different. Yeah, and historically it means that you were in the fields working, right? As right. opposed to the richer people that didn't actually have to work. So again, it's about class as well. We're talking to Sophia Chang. It's been a phenomenal conversation. We're not done just yet because we're going to have to talk about her working with Paul Simon. Ah. So, Sophia, Paul Simon, what's the story? Give us some stories. Okay, so I told you already I met Joey Ramone. He introduced me to Lex McNeil, who introduced me to his girlfriend, Carol Overby, who then got me a job at Paul Simon. So I started working at Paul Simon in 1987, Ebro, and that was coming off his worldwide Graceland tour. So, Ebro, I had only, I've been in New York for maybe six months. I had never been exposed to 
wealth. Right. I knew rich people. I'd never been exposed to wealth. I'd never been exposed to fame. And mm. what that meant, like, I'd never know, I'd never heard of a personal assistant. I was like, what is this thing? He had a personal <laughs> assistant, right? Um, there was a guy who worked at Armani who would bring Paul clothes, like a personal shopper. Like not even Paul goes to Armani and gets a private room. No, fucking Armani brings cashmere sweaters to Paul brings Simon. Brings Armani I mean, it was, to Paul. <laughs> exactly. I was like, oh my God, I was like Forrest Gump, right? The first time I'd been in a limousine was with Paul Simon. The first time I saw uh, Yankee Stadium was with Paul Simon. The first time I saw the Met, the ballets and the operas was because he was so generous and let me have his season's tickets. So being around Paul Simon was this entree into this world. And he, he's insanely smart, mm. insanely smart. He's, he's so erudite. He is so funny. He has the driest sense of humor. And I remember he had this gorgeous office in 1619 Broadway. It's called the Brill Building. It's at 49th and Broadway. And it's a very famous building. Songwriters uh, occupied it a lot. And he would have these guitar lessons. And he would play guitar and he would, you know, his, his creativity just kind of just came out all the time, even just in his talking and his walking. He's soft-spoken but sharp and funny and witty. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but there was uh, Benny Medina, who was his, one of his executives at Warner Brothers Records, did a remix of uh, Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard, and he put Big Daddy Kane and Biz Marquee on it. And at the time, I was like, yeah! I was so excited. I was so amped. I was like, holy shit. Because I was a huge Kane fan. Big Biz right. fan, too, but I was a huge Kane fan. And so when they were casting for the video, and I don't give a... I never wanted to be in a video. I was like... <laughs> so they put me in the video. I was like, oh, I'm so I was in that video, and he, you know, he was always incredibly gracious. Um, even after I stopped working for him, I would visit him at the studio, and he was, you know, he would play me music and stuff like that. And it was, it, it was an amazing experience. I think one of the greatest gifts of working at Paul Simon Ebro was that I met Mo Austin the legendary chairman of Warner Brothers Records, who, start, who yeah. started as Reprise Records with Frank Sinatra, Lenny Warnker, and Michael Austin, who was the head of A&R for Warner Brothers Records, and he became a mentor and a lifelong friend that has stood by me for 34 years for every personal and professional triumph and disappointment. And I think that was probably the greatest gift of working with Paul. Wow, amazing. Sophia Chang, the message, and it was a pleasure to see you. You too. It was uh, it was so good to see you. I'm gonna everybody go get my book if you want to do something to support Asian Americans API Heritage Month. Go get my book. <laughs> well, I was, ju baddest, I was just gonna the baddest bitch in the room, but and not only that, and you can get that on Apple Books. You know, I want to talk more specifically before we get into the scenario, so we can let people know more about the scenario. A documentary uh, series that you're working on, the intersections of Asian hip hop cultures that you're working on right now. Uh, but unlock her potential. You, we talked about it briefly in the beginning. Uh, your program that provides mentorship to women of color. Um, how can people locate it? Um, what can we do? to uh, heighten awareness of it, all of that. 
Thank you for asking. So Unlock Her Potential, as you said, is a program that provides free mentorship for women of color 18 and older in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. We launched it last year. It started in December. Year two will start in January 2022. We have 107 mentors, many of whom are your personal friends, Riza, Jizza, Joey Badass. We have a lot of people in television and film, Jim Jarmusch, Pamela Adlon, um, a bunch of actors. We also have some folks in science and academia. The, so if you go to unlockerpotential.com, you can see all of the mentors. We will, we are, this, I, this is the first time I'm saying it literally, Ebro. It's the first time I'm announcing that we have a year two um, and wow. that it will start in January. And I will put you on the spot. Yep, I'm in. And as, Let's lock in our time. Um, so it is an, uh, an hour a month for a year. And Ebro, you know this for as long as you've been working, that I am sure, and people have told you this, yo, Ebro, I met you at this event and we had a 10-minute conversation and you changed my life. Tell me you haven't heard that. I've, people have said that to me. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. There's people who still hit my, my comment section on IG and will say, you gave me a T-shirt at my high school in 1993. Yeah. You know, yeah. or you gave me a no. free CD. You know, as radio station, yeah. we just go out and give away free yeah. stuff. You change, you know, a conversation with you for literally five to ten minutes could change someone's life. Imagine what an hour a month for a year could do. Twelve years with Ebro Darden. And you're well, you know, the thing that I think that we often forget about Ebro, having done it for so long, is our institutional knowledge. Right. Shit that is just in our fucking RNA and DNA now. You know what I'm saying? Right, like, right, you and right. I don't think about it as this accumulation of knowledge because it's just inside of us. Like if you said to me, Sophia, Ch please nobody asked me to do this, but if you said to me, Sophia Chang, please run a small hip hop label, I could go to sleep and I would wake up and I would be running it. Like it's so right. easy for me. And what happens, you know, what I'm trying to do with Unlocker Potential, in addition to changing the lives of both the mentees and the mentors, right? Because this is bilateral and the mentors are deeply impacted, is I'm trying to force the gaze of corporate read white male America at this tremendous dearth. There is not that much research on it for obvious reasons, um, but many women of color, and if you ask the, your friends in your life and your colleagues who are women of color, many of them, despite how qualified and accomplished they are, have not been mentored, number one. That's a problem. Mm. Number two, as big a problem, is that they don't even think about it. Again, this is how white patriarchy works, right? So I never thought about being mentored. I fell into a mentorship and I was very fortunate, but most of my girlfriends who are women of color are brilliant and so accomplished. And they're like, I didn't have a mentor, so I could have avoided so many pitfalls if I had somebody. And so that's why I want to create this program because just like there is DEI, right? DNI, diversity, equity, and inclusion at all of these corporations, just like there is CSR, corporate social responsibility. I now want there to be MWC, mentorship for women of color, MWC. I want this to become a thing. I want every fucking company out there, if you are truly devoted to equity, if you truly want to make this world more equal, more just, then mentor women of color. And don't do it because it's cosmetic. Don't do it because you can go, oh, look, we're mentoring women of color. Do it because we're better for your bottom line. We're dope as fuck. The women of color I know, our mentees are incredible. They are hustlers. They are resourceful. They are devoted. They are passionate. They work so hard. We make everything better. 
that's so important to me is that people understand that having women of color creates a more robust experience. It's a more diverse experience, and therefore it's a richer experience, and we work our asses off, and we can multitask like no fucking body else. We can multitask better than men. I'm gonna put that on the table. Oh, dang. I mean, that's not even a question. <laughs> that's, that's, listen, that goes without saying. Most, most, most men know that we can't multitask. We need backup. Yeah, exactly. We need backup. You want me to chew gum and do what? Wait, you want exactly. me to, wait, what? No, 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 no. One thing at a time, one thing at a time. Sophia Chang, it was great talking to you. Go get that Audible memoir, The Baddest Bitch in the Room, uh, and we'll be looking for all your other stuff. And absolutely, I'm down to mentor. We just lock it in. Let's lock it in. Thank you. I love you, Ebro. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Everybody, tell your story. Tell your story. Be brave, be bold, be fearless, be subversive. Sophia Chang, take care. The message. Don't push me. Call on close to the edge. An open dialogue about the voices of today and their experiences through music that inspires them.